Here's Mitzi Hunter. Love having Mitzi Hunter on our show, former MPP for Scarborough Guildwood, mayoral candidate, and so much more. I don't. We could spend a half an hour on the so much more part. How are you? Thanks for getting up for us. I'm great, Greg. It's awesome to talk to you in 2024. And yeah, bring on the snow. That's Bri- what winter is for. That's right. That's right. Although, although I don't know, the seasonal mood disorder might be affecting Steve Pakin. SMD. Um, that could mean anything, but but we're not we, we, we're having a potential record low in terms of sunshine, Steve. But I got told it's either got to be sunny and cold or cloudy and dark and mild. You can't have it both ways in January. I think we've learned that living here. It's a OK. We are just fine. And in fact, this morning, you've got me down at the Sheraton Center Hotel. Uh, I'm attending the Roma conference. This is the Rural Ontario Municipal Association. And I only raise this because I know Mitzi when she was. <laughs> Part of all of that other that you just referred to when she was education minister or advanced um, advanced education minister or junior finance minister. uh, She no doubt was down here all the time answering questions from rural Ontario delegates. So, um, Mm. Missy, I'm living your nightmare right now. There we go. (laughs) No, it's it's always fun chatting with the rural mayors and chairs and and all of the, the folks that come in for that conference. So so have fun. And it really is. No, it's great to hear different experiences from around the province. Very true. I think what matters is, since Mitzi's time is Steve, is washroom access acceptable and has the catering improved uh, year over year? I think the why the year over year is all obviously a big stat. Has the catering improved? Are the are the buns not hard and is the coffee not cold? Is That's what matters the most. There's a beautiful parfait waiting for me. Oh, my gosh. Greg. Yes. Is it like Ponderosa? Can you go back over and over again? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't thought it through that much. Okay. Well, all right. I'm trying to make everybody hungry this morning. Um, I laugh because sometimes, and, and listen, we've, we have issues about what we should do and debates about what we should do with policing, what we should do with obviously this police budget coming to City Hall. But um, I think these stories are not your normal crime stories. Uh, we've got one guy allegedly spraying bear spray at people at Union Station. Um, again, you'd roll your eyes if it wasn't. It's frightening and sublime at the same time. And we have a machete attack with a guy wearing a horror movie mask outside of North York High School yesterday. So I bring up both those stories. Police are looking for those suspects. I'm sure they'll haul them in. But let's start with you, Mitzi. This for, uh, on a week when there's a lot of debate about what Toronto should spend on policing, and I know you talked about it a ton during your mayoral campaign. Um, this is this is a week where safety and security starts to come to the forefront when we hear stories that kind of scare people like this. Yeah, it is. Ter- it's certainly scary, especially. Well, I perk up if it's around a school where mm-hmm. you know these incidences. I mean, I've seen too many of them where they end very badly. And it seems like, you know, the school administration uh, did did their job and, and the majority of students were already on their way home by the time this incident broke out. Um, and when it comes on the TTC, you know, I, I've been riding the TTC for various various reasons recently. And my sense is that people need to take the TTC to for this, um, you know, beloved uh, part of our city to to see those ridership numbers go up. Because if you recall, Jane Jacobs says eyes on the street when mm-hmm. we are, are busy and we're active, um, then you tend to actually build safety and security around you and, and, and not let 
um, you know, specific one-off incidences um, put that that chill on everybody else to not take the, the, the TCC. I think it's important that we continue to maintain it, invest in it, um, have, you know, yeah. I saw lots of uh, officers, uh, you know, when I was taking the TTC, a very, very visible stance on safety. We've got to protect those assets. Steve, I'm not much of a, a walker by trade in the downtown core, um, but I had a half hour to do it to go from uh, one thing to another last week. And um, and, and you kind of just take stock of things. And I will say it just ends up feeling a little more tense. You're kind of more in a ready-for-anything mode, even if you don't see something. I, I can't tell if that's the product of what we do in the media or that's a product of news uh, of news combining with some of the statistics. How do you view it? Uh, I think you're absolutely right about that. You can't walk around the downtown of this capital city of Ontario, not to mention in a bunch of other places as well, without the kind of stark new reality of so much unhappiness all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are homeless people sleeping on subway cars now. There are pe- you know, people in entryways to banks and Tim Hortons donuts places. And it's just, there is a lot more of it nowadays. As to the two incidents you described off the top here, I guess what I, I'm not an expert obviously in any of this, but what I want to know is, are these kind of other examples of one-offs where you've got a couple of people in distress uh, and doing things that are completely indefensible and uh, inexplicable, uh, or is this kind of a thin edge of the wedge? Is this an example of increasing mental health problems emerging from COVID that are going to become, a, 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 unfortunately, a more present part of our regular lives? And if it's the latter, well, holy smokes, folks, we got to do something about that because that's terrifying. And Mitzi, I'm going to bring it back to to your campaign. What I admired about your campaign, among other things, is you kind of suggested talking about an emphasis on, if not some reform regarding mental health. We went, obviously, uh, 15, 20 years ago from an emphasis on institutionalization of people with illnesses and addictions to something that's more effective and accessible. And I, I, I don't know where we go. I'm worried we're 0 for 2. We don't have the institutions right now. We know that. But we also don't have what you pointed out several times, effective and accessible services delivered in our, in our communities. And it's getting worse. It's not getting better. Yeah. And one of the things that I had proposed was that the medical officer of health, the public health unit in Toronto, play a role in developing a mental health strategy for the three million people who live here, even though it's. It's not a city responsibility. It definitely is a provincial health responsibility. But in terms of identifying, you know, where those trend lines are that that Steve has pointed out, is this this an an after effect of COVID? Are we seeing more pressures and people receiving less support? You know, those are the things that we need to get a handle on. And especially around young people, you know, I I believe that the the pandemic was particularly hard on young people Mm. and we have to make sure that the the right supports are in place across the system. Let's do the investment upstream so that we don't have these types of incidences playing out on our streets. And then we take the most expensive option, which is, you know, more enforcement, more policing. Even the police will tell you that that's actually not the solution. You can't police your way out of these problems. We have to make the investments upstream. We've used a lot of terms, Steve, before we move on, like compassion and um, stigma. And we, and we try to have compassion without stigmatizing people 
for the decision they make or, or the or the illnesses or addictions they suffer from. But I'm finding the public's kind of swinging more towards some middle ground here and trying to find some kind of balancing act because they have a right to be safe. And they also would say, if that was my loved one, well, I wouldn't just walk past them. Well, I wouldn't just leave them there. Well, I wouldn't let them use drugs in the open every day. Like we've got to find like find the spot on the teeter totter where it all fits properly, if you will. Totally agree. And I think you put your finger on it. Exactly. There's a balance to be made here. And, you know, sadly, none of the three of us on this call this morning are probably expert enough to figure out where that Mm. balance is. But we surely and I think you're doing the right thing by bringing the public's attention, the listening public's attention to this issue, because, you know, I just find, Greg, Mitzi, when I look around in a a post-COVID world in which we're living in now, sort of, I mean, COVID's still with us. Yeah but we're still sort of dealing with the after effects and the consequences of COVID. It just seems a lot harder out there, a lot harsher, a lot more problems for a lot more people. And, and really we do have to, we have to focus our attention on this a lot more. And it feels a lot worse in the winter, right? When it's freezing cold and the weather's lousy and um, you you can't sort of get yourself together for a couple of days. Sleeping outside is impossible. This isn't Los Angeles or San Francisco or Seattle. I want to move to international students, and that's part of things as well. Um, Here's the federal immigration minister, Mark Miller, laying down what's going to be new. And then we'll hear from Mitzi and Steve on on whether or not this is a start or just a Band-Aid on a major problem. Here's Mark Miller from yesterday. It is the latest in a series of measures to improve program integrity and set international students up for the success in order to maintain uh, a sustainable level of temporary residence in Canada as well. To ensure that there is no further growth in the number of international students in Canada for 2024, we are setting a national application intake cap for a period of two years. For 2024, the cap is expected to result in approximately 364,000 approved study permits, a decrease of 35% from 2023. We are also allocating the cap space by province based on population, such as that some provinces will see much more significant reductions. Okay, so that's what Mark Miller said yesterday. Uh, Mincy Hunter, the, the great thing about this conversation with you, Steve, myself, the three of us know our way around the university system quite well, and, and we know we've recognized and identified some of these issues. Is this the start, or does even more need to be done to make universities and colleges responsible for the communities? When you take in an international student, maybe you attempt to provide a level of guaranteed housing somehow, some way. This is just the start, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something had to be done. And, you know, we saw that coming when 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 Minister Miller uh, announced that there would be the requirement for more, um, you know, resources being brought in by students, you know, rather than $10,000, it went to over $20,000. Because the reality is that, you know, people were coming here and just not being able to maintain uh, housing and food, uh, because they weren't prepared. And not that, that action was designed to be more prepared. Yesterday's announcement of the cap, we did see that coming because there were no controls in place. You know, the, there was almost like a free ticket that um, not not just the universities and colleges, but really the real target here in the minister's announcement are the private career colleges that, you know, perhaps were just moving people through without the actual quality check. And and that's what this is designed to do. It's to really uh, lower that number so that we're actually getting 
uh, quality uh, coming in in terms of the type of education being delivered to these international students, which they are here to seek as well, because they pay an awful lot of money to come into our country to learn. And you know, also important to note, it doesn't affect any anyone currently. It's about future intake that the minister was uh, talking about. Yeah, but Steve, they're moving quickly. And I know some colleges, um, you know, there's some people that have been described as uh, some some institutions have been described as bad actors here. But this is a blanket cap. And and that may give the it buys the government time to decide who the bad actors are over these next two years, because otherwise then it's just a, a game of finger pointing like this is they're getting this done over the next eight months to make sure that things are right next fall. I admire it's too it's a little late, but I admire that the federal government finally did it. Well, yes, but let's look at this. When you make a blanket cap, what that means is that the good players and the bad players are affected equally. And I think if you're a good player in this system, you're thinking, why am I getting hit with the same baseball bat that the bad players are getting hit with? Let me, let me sort of build on what Mitzi had to say and add this. Mm-hmm. We obviously don't want to bring people from other countries around the world here to study in our college and university system if we, if we can't provide them with a place to live or we can't provide them with the supports they need to succeed, that doesn't look particularly good on Ontario or Canada. So let's admit that. But then as we go along, we know as well that the current college and university system depends on a lot of foreign students for the bottom line for domestic students as well, because they pay a lot more to go to our colleges and universities. So on the one hand, right, don't bring them in just to see them fail. We got to set them up for success. But on the other hand, you are now depriving the college and university system of the money it needs in order to do its thing for, yes, for students who are born and raised in the province of Ontario. So it's a bit of a double whammy. I, I don't know what the alternative is at the moment, but we got a problem here. Can I can I offer a few suggestions, uh, Greg? Let's have it. Okay? Let's have it. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, one of the things that, that the provincial government, which has responsibility for the post-secondary and for education entirely, and they are actually going to be involved in the implementation of these caps that have been put on across the board federally. Look at the fact that there was a 10 percent cut to tuition all the way back in 2019, I believe it was. And and that has hurt our college and our university systems in terms of just the, you know, the regular cost of things going up each year and their ability to cope. And the, the distress signals are going up by those universities saying we cannot continue to, you know, have this cut in tuition, have this cap. So tuitions have not gone up at all for domestic students. And then what was left unsaid was the whole space of international students. So it has created a bit of an imbalance in our system. Mm. So it's time that we correct that and make the investments because we, you know, we want the best labor. We want to train people for the, the jobs of the future. Well, we've got to invest in our education system in order to do that. Yeah. I it's think actually worse than that. It's, yeah. it's worse than that Mitch, yeah. because not, o- not only are you right in what you just said, But the province of Ontario appointed a blue ribbon panel to look into this, and their own panel came back and said what Mitzi just said, and yet there's been no action from the Minister of Colleges and Universities to do anything about this. So, I mean, what gives? Yeah, and that's that's where I want to go to accountability to Mitzi. You've been in government, you've been in opposition, you got no problem being front facing. I I don't get the the absence, and I've heard from so many people about Jill Dunlop. Like this is not a call out. This is just these are honest questions. She's the minister of university and colleges for the Ford government. I, I've looked for an 
hour at least last night. There's no record of her making public statements or taking questions about international students. And you can. I know politics is politics. She can come out and pin some of this on the federal government. Of course she can with immigration visas. But I just find somebody's absent. This is the gig. This is that was her moment yesterday. And I nothing on her Twitter account. No appearances. No nothing. I don't think that's accountability for a public official. Well, I mean, I'm not really sure where anyone is right now within the provincial (laughs) government. There's been a bit of a silence on lots of issues, including Steve. Steve knows where they are. They're at Roma today. Steve, corral them. (laughs) Well, maybe, yeah, you should corral them and get some statements out of them on these burning issues. And, you know, it is an opportunity for Minister Dunlop to stand up for this sector. You know, the Council of Ontario Universities has has been, you know, taking out ads and really sounding the alarm because it's hard to rebuild these great public institutions when we let them fail. And right now, they've depleted their reserves. You know, everybody had a rough time coming out of the pandemic. They're, they've, you know, sort of endured the cut to tuition and on, and on the caps. To, um, to tuition rates, and, and they're saying enough is enough that they want to see more investment in education. If we say it is as important as we do for the economy and for being this place that you know has innovation and all of these things, then we, we can't turn our backs on our publicly funded education system and at the post-secondary level. I hear that. So and there's time to speak is now. And just to wrap on this, Steve, I know you and I visited uh, during the Christmas holidays and I've got, uh, I call it stress. I don't call it anxiety, uh, but there's stress about my grade 12 entering the post-secondary world. And I'm like, it, nobody loves it anyway, because you lose, you know, you lose that kid at home. But it's the worst time in my lifetime to be sending a kid off. To, I want him to have the experience I had or you two had. I did. Uh, he's not going to get it, I feel like. Well, the concern, of course, here, and I can tell you, as a former chancellor at Laurentian University, I've seen what happens to a post-secondary institution when it's yeah. got financial problems. I mean, Laurentian went into, into bankruptcy protection. Uh, there was a piece in the paper a couple of weeks ago about how Queen's University Queens, for goodness sakes, in Kingston is depleting its reserves in order to take care of business. And, you know, if Queens is in trouble, that there are lots of other post-secondary institutions in the province that are as well. This is a looming crisis. They've got to do something about this. Yeah. So we need a lot more noise from the province here. I only get a few minutes left, but I did want to get to this story. And I know we're throwing this at you guys late. Um, but but I think I, I know we all know people who own businesses, work for businesses, and this affected them. Just to let our audience know, this is kind of new in the last half hour. The Canada Emergency Business Account loans were due last week on Thursday. It was a big news story that this was the deadline. The federal government wasn't going to extend it. And then there would be a 5% interest rate charged on Friday. Well, either either uh, because they can't or because they won't. The numbers that that the Globe and Mail found out is we're talking more than 25 percent of businesses miss that particular deadline. And, and Mitzi, again, we could bump this and it could be the lead story every day about how difficult it was with covid, all the open, closed, open, closed across our country. And and what was done was done. But that's really concerning numbers. We're talking 900,000 companies that took the CEBA. And if I do the math, that's at least 225,000 companies that haven't paid it back or they can't. No, it's, it's definitely um, a really challenging time for small business, especially in certain sectors like restaurants that you know many of them just can't make the numbers work anymore and we're seeing so many of those closures coming forward 
you know, I think from a federal government perspective, they feel as if they've given many extensions yeah. and, and they had to, you know, make a decision because the repayment of those dollars then goes back into the Treasury for other needed priorities that we have uh, federally that we want to see continue to happen. And so, you know, the, the 25% of businesses or the 200,000 that did not you know, choose to refinance, which they they had an opportunity to refinance and to get that $20,000 forgiveness, uh, or they weren't able to refinance, you know, there has to be some support put in place uh, to help those businesses to survive. Because we know that small businesses are the, they legitimately are the backbone of our main streets and of the vibrancy in our local economies. So we can't just let them fail, but maybe there are other supports that they need to to help them to, to weather the economic uh, conditions that we're facing right now. And Steve, nobody wants to revisit what it was really like going into, say, you know, winter of 20 or, or spring of 21, but there was a lot of reverb effect uh, for small businesses. We talk about the problem province big box stores you could shop at smaller ones you couldn't big places you were open small places weren't so it hit all these small business owners these men and women who push into the table and try and give our community something i'll never blame trudeau for pushing out those loans i I never will uh, because it was needed at the time but i i think they've also looked and seen serb has not been collected by everybody that got it and they're looking and going wait a minute you're forgiving that loan but you're hitting us hard here by asking for this money back right now well, you use two different words here, which are crucial. Uh, the first one is either they can't pay back the loans, and that we have to have some sympathy for. If they don't have the cash flow or they don't have the business that allows them to return that payment, that's one thing. But then you also said can't or won't. Now, if they can but won't, that's a different story. And I know, um, you know, you, you put your finger a second ago on this issue of, of policy back when this was all happening. I I never understood. I thought it was completely inexplicable, frankly, that the government was allowing big box stores to stay open and people were jamming them on the weekends, despite the admonition to social distance. And yet they were telling small businesses, you know, sorry, you can't open at all. Uh, Even if you only bring five people into your store at once, we're not going to allow that at all. Now, that made absolutely no sense at all. And if we're seeing some of the reverberation from that policy right now, that's a problem. 